Hey there, friends. Welcome back to the third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast. If you haven't already done it, go ahead and click that subscribe button. We hope that you'll check us out also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok and find out more about content. Of course, we encourage you to also check out the website at rayreynoldsrap.com. We hope you enjoy today's program. For our third season of the Ray Reynolds Rap Podcast, we've decided to do a couple of things that will help in you strengthening your own personal walk with God. And so uh, one of the things that we're going to do is we're going to be very intentional in the way we present the gospel message. Uh, And we're hoping that through some of these lessons that you will have a desire to grow more spiritually. Uh, And to help us with that, we are going to deal with some tough questions. Uh, In some broadcasts, you'll hear me talking about subjects that maybe even your preacher or uh, Bible class teacher is afraid to, to discuss because of the basically the sensitiveness of that particular lesson. And the second thing that we're doing is we are encouraging people to read their Bible all the way through. And so to help us with that, we are doing surveys of New Testament books. Some of the lessons will be one lesson. Some of them will be uh, two or three or four lessons, depending on the size of the book and the contents. But right now, we want to present to you one of those lessons on a New Testament book. I encourage you to grab your Bible and study along. If you got a notepad, piece of paper, highlighter, that'll probably help as you begin to make notes and think about uh, how you want to read this book from cover to cover. And I hope that it's a blessing to you. So First Peter, as we begin tonight, I want to give you a little bit of background about the book. Uh, of course, Simon Peter is the author of this book. Peter writes these two letters. Uh, among probably other things that he wrote, these are the two that were preserved and God has inside of his holy word and gives us an opportunity to get a little insight on what Paul and Peter and James and all these guys were doing. Peter's ministry is significant because his story plays out on the early chapters in the book of Acts. Uh, sometimes you'll ask people for their most memorable stories in Acts. And, and of course, Acts 2 is one of them. But when you ask for like the top five or ten stories that you remember, uh, oftentimes we run immediately to the things that Paul did. But Paul doesn't even become a central character until the ninth chapter. The early chapters and even into chapter 10 and 11, we see Peter is present. Peter is serving, of course, not only as an apostle, but as one of the leaders of the church in Jerusalem and of also that ministry of going and checking on all these mission works. In fact, When Peter is going with James to go check out the work in Samaria, they have to kind of make sure that Philip is doing what is necessary, the right kinds of things, teaching the right kinds of things, and also witnessing the power of the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit so he could go back and tell the brethren in Jerusalem where James served as an elder. It was probably written somewhere around 62 or 60 to 63 AD, so a lot of these early letters that were passed around were given one church to another or to a person to take. They would be very copious in taking these notes down and writing down all of these. The scribes would sit down and put them scroll by scroll. And so uh, this one that Peter writes deals with persecution. And he's specifically talking about those that had been persecuted by Nero. Nero's uh, an early, just before Nero. These early persecutions that were taking place were getting more and more Um, harsh, more severe. And so Peter, like James is doing in the last book, 
just trying to encourage the brethren to stay faithful. Now, if you get a letter from someone who is famous, you, you might keep it. You might frame it. You might put it somewhere special. I had a friend who was opening a business, and he sent a letter to, uh, uh, I think it was Ronald Reagan, and Ronald Reagan sent a letter back. And that was pretty impressive. So he had that framed, uh, just saying, sorry, I can't make it. <laughs> so basically, if we have something that is special, uh, we want to hold it as a treasure. And I believe that First and Second Peter are just like that. They are treasures from one of the greatest apostles, one of the greatest preachers of the first century. And so he's saying, don't be discouraged. And, and Peter writes in such a personal way. And, and just like Paul does, that's one thing I love about it. I have read books before where I literally felt like I was a part of the book. In fact, I remember uh, reading one particular book, and the central character died. And I cried for almost three hours that night because I was so invested in that character for multiple books that I could not believe that they had killed off this character. In fact, I immediately wanted to go to social media, but I couldn't because I didn't want to ruin the book for anybody else. But you get wrapped up in a story. These letters are very different in that they're not trying to tell a particular story to get you engaged and involved, but they're written to your heart to say, don't give up. And so you feel like when you read the Word of God, it's literally written to you. And uh, this is one of those letters. If you're dealing with persecution or discouragement or you're trying to teach somebody the gospel, this is the book to pick up and to read and to learn that you can overcome any suffering. Now, Peter is going to end up facing a violent death. And we'll get more to that maybe next week when we talk about Second Peter. But he's, he's just basically saying to the church, don't give up. And at this time of tribulation, there were sporadic uh, persecutions. They were not all general. Sometimes it was just one region here and one region there. But they're getting more and more organized. And Paul was a part of that early persecution. And you know his story as you've read through the book of Acts. And so this is about the suffering Christianity uh, was going to face. And it's unpopular to talk about, but Peter says we've got to talk about what's going on. And if somebody got these letters, by the way, they had to be very cautious in how they worded them. This is something I always teach when it comes to Revelation. Okay, And this is important if you're not here for that lesson. We may have to do more than one lesson on Revelation. The main thrust of Revelation is John, who, by the way, is a prisoner... He may be in exile, but he's still a prisoner of the Roman government, is trying to tell the church, you need to be ready for harsh persecution. So he selects seven congregations, and he writes to them. And as you would do, if you were writing to people to tell them on the outside about what you're hearing on the inside, you would, were, you would use coded language. In fact, a lot of times the criminals... Not that I know very many, but I've seen these spy shows. You'll see how they have a code where they will take a book and they will notch out letters. And so you lay it down on a book and you could see this letter and this letter and this letter and this letter. That's not what John does. John actually inserts words and phrases that the alarm bell goes off and you go, oh, that's in Ezekiel. What is Ezekiel saying? Oh, that's back in Isaiah. What was Isaiah saying? Oh, that's a prophecy from Jeremiah. And so Peter is, is, is trying to basically encourage the church with what little language he can use without getting onto the radar of the Roman emperor. But John, he's being guarded, he's being cautious, but we've got 20 plus chapters of him using this coded language because he's trying to tell these seven churches, don't give up. It's going to get ugly, but don't give up. So Peter's is personal. 
These sufferings he talks about are things that James, as I said, has talked about. And Peter is going to identify in this book that the true enemy is not the Roman Empire. The true enemy is not the person holding a sword or a shield. The real enemy is not the one riding on the chariot into town. The real enemy is Satan. And he's going to make that abundantly clear in this book, that it is the devil who is seeking out his prey. Even though he may use the Roman government, even though he may use your enemies, your neighbors, the true adversary is the one that's named means adversary, and that is Satan. And so his warnings about violence and death is not to put any burden upon the political leaders, but to say, think about what's motivating them. What is it? Is it greed? Is it power? Is it pride? And that's Satan pushing the buttons. The letter is intended for exiled Christians, too, that have left under the face of persecution, that are kind of in hiding, deciding when they would come back. Uh, we see this a lot at this particular time, and I'm not going to get political, but I will tell you that we have a lot of people crossing our border every single day. And one of the reasons why they do that is they will come from countries where there is severe persecution, and they will come to Mexico and then they will make their way into our country. Now, there are a lot, of, a lot of those that are coming for other reasons, nefarious reasons. But the reason why many of them are let in is because there's a handful of them that are wanting religious exile. And that's what the Christians did in the first century. They went to areas where they could feel safe, where there was a highly Jewish population, or that there was a population that spoke their language, or a large synagogue, or had people that were very fluent uh, in, in Jewish culture. And so they went to those safe places. You know, if I'm a, a gun-toting, uh, very conservative person, and I am all about my religion, and I am all about my faith, I probably wouldn't feel welcome in a few places in New York State or in California. Nothing against those places. But you know that it's different when you go to different cities. Uh, Texas is seeing that now, with a lot of people coming from California into their state. So they bring their thoughts and their culture and their words and their, their, uh, their, their religion with them. And so each different place in the Roman Empire had little pockets of Hellenism or pockets of Judaism or pockets of Roman influence that was so strong that they would kind of run in different directions. And so these people went places where they'd be safe. And they're saying, I want to be kept safe. I want to be kept away from that persecution. And so he's going to admonish the leaders of the church too that are keeping the people together. As you can imagine in Acts chapter 8 when it talks about Paul wreaking havoc on the church, they scattered. And so so Peter's writing to these people that have scattered over here to this pocket and this pocket. And that's why he says elders need to, to be very careful that they rule with in, in a certain way. And so there are basically five Roman provinces we believe he's writing to. Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And these are the regions where he did ministry, he did work, and it seems to be the case from, from this text anyway, uh, here in the first chapter. This may be who he is identifying. So what I want to do is I want to go through and just notice a few highlighted texts. And these are passages that I have, I have written down in my Bible or marked in my Bible as, as great texts of Scripture. But I want you to see the outline first. So the book of 1 Peter is basically about hope, holiness, maturity, submission, compassion, salvation, the wisdom of a Christian, suffering, and then he deals with the humbleness, the humility we need to have, 
and the strength that we gain from fighting a good Christian fight. That's the way I divide it. It's basically two different sections per chapter. And we'll show, in fact, many of your Bibles may have headings over these sections and how they are kind of divided into, it could actually be a, you know, a 10 chapter book of these five chapters. So think about these verses. Let's start with 1 Peter uh, chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 3. Actually, let's read 1 through 5 to get started. It says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and the sprinkling of blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. As you read these words, again, like James, he jumps right into it. Paul sometimes will spend a, a quick deal of time in the first chapter and the last chapter talking to people. And he'll identify people that he's with or people that he has spent time around. James and Peter write a lot like John Mark. I've always said it's a lost, the kids don't know, but maybe you'll know this illustration. But I was taught that Mark is kind of the Joe Friday gospel. You know, just the facts, ma'am. Do you remember Dragnet? Does anybody remember Dragnet? So uh, just the facts, ma'am. That's the, that's the approach that Mark had. And that's the same approach that Peter and James have. These are two guys who worked very closely together. And John Mark, who's a relative of, uh, of, of Barnabas and taken under the wing of Peter, is learning from these guys. And we know Barnabas and James spend a lot of time together. So they write a lot alike. They talk a lot alike. Um, when I've heard preachers before, I, it doesn't take me long. And those of you who have, I'm sure Billy and I know Nathan can do this. When you hear a guy talking and preaching, I can, within just a short period of time, not even within a whole lesson, I'm talking about within 10 minutes, I can probably tell you where he went to college. Because I can tell by the words he uses and the phrases he uses and the topics that he wants to talk about where he went to school. If it was a school of preaching, if it was a college or whatever, I can tell. In fact, some people will come to me and say, didn't you go to you know, Heritage Christian University? I did. How do you know that? Well, we know a guy that went to Heritage and you sound a lot like him. I guess that's complimentary. Uh, but I think, you know, there are times that people just have a similar approach and Peter James and Barnabas and Mark all had that same approach in dealing with people. And this is about hope. And he talks about a living hope. And if you're writing to people that are discouraged and suffering and, and wondering when it's ever going to end, you talk about hope. You talk about the fact that, that this is going to get better. Now, Jesus does that too in Revelation. And we, we have an opportunity to, when we meet people, like Peter's telling us, we can have hope. We need to share with them that they have hope as well, something to build on. That's our foundation. Things will get better. Uh, Paul, even in 1 Corinthians 13, talks about faith, hope, and love being the three great virtues. And so Peter says, you need to have this, this hope, this living hope. And that living hope is through a new life, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So you died in, in uh, you were without hope. Now, Paul deals with this in Ephesians. You were without hope, but you raise up in a living hope. Every day you are a living hope. Every day you can breathe and you can walk and you can talk. That is a, you have a living hope. You can go and do great things for the cause of Christ. 
So that's his message as it starts. And he also talks about heaven, which is a great motivating factor if you're talking to Christians. And then the next little section, uh, on down to verses 13 through 16, he says, Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Because it is written, be holy, for I am holy. When you're in this living hope and you're, you're choosing to serve God every day, you have some adjustments that need to be made. Now, I don't know if anybody knows the, this illustration, but Paul uses this. Peter's very effective with it. Gird up the loins of your mind. Now, what do you think he's saying when he says, gird up the loins of your mind? Anybody know? Have an idea? What's he mean? What do you think of when you hear the word gird, other than gastroesophageal reflux disease? Do what? A belt. You get a belt. Whenever men were going to engage in warfare, they would have to pull their robe up and belt it off because they're going to have to use their legs to run. It's hard to run in a robe, okay? So you pull that robe up, you like that, and you, you get that robe, pull it up, and you belt it, and you're able to run. You're also able to ensure that your sword is not going to get caught up in your robe. No, <laughs> I think I'm done. <laughs> I, after a couple weeks ago <laughs> with... I'm always nervous about that now, but yeah, so you got to be careful when you get your sword out with your shield, and so he says, you know, basically bind up the things that are necessary, tie it up, get ready, put your belt on, loose your shoelaces, we might say, and he says, so what you need to do is take your mind and, and bind it up on these key things, because this is the, ba this is the battlefield, and we'll get to that in chapter 5. And he starts chapter 1. If you're on the battlefield, you got to get control of your mind. you got to take your thoughts captive, Paul says. So Peter's saying, gird up the things of your mind. Here's what you need to do. You need to be sober. The idea of being uh, self-controlled and temperate is another word that's used in Scripture. It doesn't just mean uh, not having a, you know, an alcoholic issue. It's talking about being sober-minded, being the type of person that is calm, reserved, temperate. And then when you can accomplish that, you rest your hope fully upon grace. And then he talks about how you as a child of God ought to act like your father. So we have to go on to perfection. We've got to be holy. You, if you've heard me say this before, I'll say it again. I'll say it a lot. This is the only quality of God that you cannot, cannot say one time. When you talk about God's holiness, it has to be said three times. Go through Isaiah. Go through Revelation. When it talks about the holiness of God, it says God is holy, holy, holy. And that's not just because there's three parts to the Godhead. It's that in God's presence, you better not be clean. You better super clean, nah, super squeaky clean in the presence of God. You are approaching the Lord. In Moses' story... If you'll remember, the burning bush, it, is, it, is, it has the appearance that it's going to burn up, but it doesn't. It's a miracle. And when he walks up to that bush, do you remember what the Lord said to him? Take off your sandals. Why? It's holy ground. Holy ground. That means this is not a place for dirty shoes. I remember one time we had new carpet put down. And every time the door opened, 
You know, take the shoes off, take the shoes off. When you've got clean floors, you know, in your house, don't want the kids on them. Got to keep it clean. Sometimes you'll clean up all the dishes and you'll get them stored away. And as soon as you put that last ditch in, the last time it comes in, here the kids come. Oh, I want to make me a sandwich. I want to. It feels good to have everything clean. Peter says your life needs to be holy. Holy, without blemish. And I don't know that we could spend too much time talking about what it means to be holy. That means getting rid of things that are filth. And he talks about our sin. He talks about our way of living. These are things that you put away. You're obedient to God now. You're not going to go back to the same lusts. You're not going to go back to ignorant living. You live a holy life. Because you need to be uh, basically set apart as holy. So that you don't look like the enemy. It's good to know who's on the Lord's side. And those that are on the Lord's side are choosing holiness. They don't engage in certain conversations. They don't watch certain movies. They don't listen to certain music. They don't hang out with certain people. You know where they're going to be at night. They're going to be home in bed. They're not going to be out partying. There's a lifestyle that needs to be lived by a child of God that is holy. And it's not meant to be done in arrogance. Some people say, well, they're, they're just arrogant. No, not at all. That's a humble lifestyle to say, I'm not in charge. I only do what God tells me to do. Just like you would, you remember when the lights used to come on on the streets, you out playing baseball in the yard, we used to with friends. Those, you better be home before dark, and when those street lights kicked on, you better get to hoofing it, because you were going to be late, and your mama was going to tan your hide. So we'd get out there, and as soon as those lights came on down the street, running back home, because we knew, we knew what our parents ask us to do. In the presence of God, he commands us to do certain things. They're not burdensome. The Bible says they're not burdensome. They are a blessing to be able to live a holy life. We want to do what our Father asks us to do and stay pure. So move to the second chapter and a couple of texts just to to highlight. The first two or three verses in chapter 2 are great. Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. See, those are the things that we put away. He says, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And he's talking to some new Christians. And he says, you're new to the faith. Learn to grow on the milk of the word. But there comes a time where we have to grow from that. We we dealt with this in Hebrews. We have to grow. We have to grow up. And so he says, but if you need milk, get as much as you need. And when you get that foundation of those very simple things, you'll be prepared for what is to come. You should not take someone who is a new Christian and throw them to the wolves. You know, I think I mentioned we were talking about door knocking uh, at one congregation. We had a man who was basically converted during the door knocking, and he wanted to go immediately out and go door knocking with us. He said, you're not ready for that. You're not ready for that. So we learn to grow in our faith before we start taking it and sharing it with someone else. And so that means... Just take time. Desire to learn. Desire to grow. And I love being around new Christians. I've always thought every church ought to have a new Christians class. Every church ought to have one. Um, where we have people that come in that are baptized and they need to know. What are the basic fundamentals? What are we, why are we teaching this? Why are we doing this? Uh, there was a lady one time we converted at a church I was at. And um, she, we had, I don't know how many times we studied with her. She went through the Jewel Miller film strips. So there's six, right? Or five, five lessons. 
And so I went through the five lessons with her, and I did a couple other studies with her, and she decided to be baptized. Well, I, I'd assume since she'd come on Wednesday night and a couple times on Sunday, uh, and she'd gone through all these studies and got all the right answers, she would be ready. And she got into an argument with a member uh, outside in the little foyer, uh, and she was upset because she said, I don't understand why you don't have instruments. I thought y'all had instruments. We're like, well, you've been here before. You know we don't do that. Well, can you tell me why? And apparently this person that she encountered didn't give an adequate answer, or at least not an answer she was, she was happy with. And so her and her husband were threatening to leave. So we don't understand why you don't do these things. And so I talked to the elders and said, well, she needs teaching. We have to sit down. We can't just put somebody in that environment. We need to tell them this is why we worship. And we, it was talked about in the videos, you know. She should have got it there, but sometimes you don't. And our children don't. They don't get it. Sometimes you could say it over and over and over. Men don't understand, so you have to take it and teach it. In such a way that, and this is the best part, the, the, the easiest way, I think, to do it, and that is show them in their Bible. Don't tell them, you know, we, we, do, the, we do the Lord's Supper on the first day of every week because we're told to. You know, we do, we do the, because we're a scriptural church. That's why we do it. Why don't y'all do it? Y'all are sinners. We, why do we take the Lord's Supper on the first day of the week? Because that's the way they did it in the New Testament church. Well, I can talk like that, but I have yet to give you one single scripture. And so when someone asks a question about a biblical topic, take their Bible, point it out, and let them read it. It's so effective to let them read it out of their own Bible, to let them say, and you might want to highlight this verse. Look at this verse. Look what this says. And you read it with them, and they read it off the pages of the Bible that they have in their house, that they've looked at, that they've studied with. And also it shows them that you, you are trying to familiarize yourself with certain things. Because if we're just doing things, going through the motions because we always have, then we're no different than anyone else. We do things based on spirit and in truth, and the truth part is essential, certainly essential. We've got to know why we do what we do. And so Peter's saying, grow, grow. And then he talks about being a living stone, verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone, rejected indeed uh, by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also are living stones, and being built upon a spiritual house, a holy uh, priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable through, to God through Jesus Christ. This is your living stones, living epistles. That's another phrase Paul and Peter both use. They are living testament. It's like the, the stones that were used for the Ten Commandments. You are an example to everyone around you. And new Christians can really show how eager and how exciting it can be to study the Word of God. And so he says, then you're also being added to the priesthood. And that's, he'll get into that a little bit later down here in verse 9. He'll say, uh, verse 9, but you're a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. When you traveled through the ancient world in this century, you were known not just because of your accent or because of the clothes you wore or the color of your skin, but you were known when you were around people, they could, they could figure out pretty quickly where you were from, what region that you were from. And they would ask you, what nation have you come from? What's your nationality? Not necessarily race, but what's your nationality? And they were proud to say, some of them, to say, I am a Jew. I am a Jew. And so Peter says you can't say that any longer. If you're a chosen child of God and added to the holy priesthood, you're a special nation that's been set apart 
And you, including Gentiles, including people that were non-Jewish, now are inside the family. And this was a struggle for early Christians that were Jews because they were quick to accept Jesus as the Messiah. They saw the miracles. But with the influx of foreigners, it kind of got under their skin a little bit. It made them feel uncomfortable. So Peter says, it doesn't matter what nation, what nationality you are. We are now a holy nation. We are now, you don't have to be in the lineage of Levi to be, the high, to be one of the priests. Because Christ is the high priest. And we're all part of that royal priesthood. We're all adopted into this spiritual family. And he uses several different metaphors to describe the unity of the children of God. And I think that's important to point out. That we are all chosen vessels. We are all part of this great family And we have obtained this by the mercy of God. We didn't have it before, but we do now. Um, Then in verse 13, I I equate this chapter 213, a section, to the same thing that Paul says in Romans 13. Peter's going to encourage those discouraged, frustrated, suffering, persecuted Christians to respect their government. And that fascinates me. Peter does the same thing that Paul did. Romans 13, honor your king, respect your government, honor those that are put in a position of authority because God put them there. Listen to what Peter says. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God. This is the will of God, that by doing good, You may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Says it twice. They didn't use exclamation points when they wrote in the first century. So if it's repeated more than once, it's done for a reason. Honor the king, honor the king. Now who's going to kill Peter? The king, the emperor. And he says, still honor him because he's been put in this position of supreme authority by God. Jesus, before he ascended into heaven, told him to go and teach, didn't he? Go preach the gospel to all nations. He says, but all authority in heaven and on earth have been given to me. Does Jesus have that authority? Yes, he does. Then why are certain people ruling as kings and queens? Why are there certain dictators in certain governments? Why are there people right now looking over launch codes for nuclear weapons to fire at other nations? That didn't make any sense to me. Why is that tyrant on the throne over there? Why haven't the people risen up and gotten rid of him yet? Peter says, honor the king. If a person is in authority, they're there because God has placed them there. There is a lesson to be taught We may not want to learn that lesson. It's just like, I can't remember how many times I would walk into a class and we would have a quiz or a test and I would wish we had a substitute that day. Why is the teacher giving us these tests and asking us these questions? Why can't they just leave us alone? They can teach us, but we don't have to be tested on it, do we? Our Christian walk is a constant test. And the things that we face, uh, that is part of God's will. And that's a, tough, that's a tough pill to swallow. But God allows, he doesn't necessarily move like chess pieces, these people, but he allows certain things to happen so that what Peter says will be the reaction. The reaction of Christianity is not to rise up and spill hatred into the public forum. 
But in kindness and in love, respectfully, I disagree. I, I, I support, and I, I don't have to support, <laughs> but I'm going to pray for, and I'm going to honor the person in authority, but I'm also going to use my voice, use my vote, use my actions to say, I'd like to see somebody else in charge. That's okay. That's perfectly fine. But we still have respect for those that are in authority. And, you know, David, and there are other Psalms, there are other prophets that prophesy that there will be some that will be tested by fire and will not burn. And that is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I wonder if Daniel taught him that. You know, if you ever get faced with the furnace, God will be with you. God didn't, I don't see anywhere in the text where God came down and told him, hey, look, you can go in the fire, but I'm going to spare you. They realize in the text that they may not survive it, and they don't care. They say our principles are our principles. But notice how they did it with respect. We will not bow down. They didn't, they didn't take up arms and go destroy the image. I mean, they probably couldn't have gotten that far. But what they did instead is they said, we're not going to do it. We, we will not do it. We will not do it. You, you, can't, you can ask us to bow down. You can beg us to bow down. You can threaten our lives, but we're not going to do it. We're not going to bow down to this image. And they do it with such a, uh, you know, I don't know what the word is, but it's to me, it's, it's, it's humble the way that they approach it, is that we're just not going to do this. We will not do it. And then they are spared in the fire. And uh, everybody else has to go, wait a minute, these guys, maybe they're right about something. And there's this cycle that happens in Daniel with the kings that they all at some point realize that the king of the Jews was the true king. That God was the true God, the one and only God of Israel. And they, they have to, to wrestle with that. But there are going to be people that will not, no matter what you do, they're never going to convert. They refuse to. And they're going to try to force their beliefs on you. And so Peter's saying, you're going to face this. You're going to face evildoers. But just know that you, you try to love all people, honor all people, you know, and fear God. And when, when you honor the king, you're also, in a way, honoring your Lord by following his command. Um, again, there's nothing wrong with speaking out when we see things that are not just. Jesus did that. He calls out Pilate in, uh, in Luke. We talked about that a few weeks ago. So there are times that uh, we need to really pray, pray, pray before we engage in warfare. And that's where we're going in chapter 5. Uh, chapter 3 is about, um, the first part is about husbands and wives, uh, and he says a very powerful thing for us men to take into consideration. Uh, he says, wives, likewise be submissive to your own husbands, that even if some of you do not obey the word, that without a word they may be won by the conduct of their wives. When they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear, don't let your adornment be merely outward, arranging the hair, wearing pearls, putting on fine apparel, rather Instead, he says, don't let that be the only thing you work on. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is very precious in the sight of God. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, whose daughters you are, if you do good and are not afraid with any terror. He says, there was a respect between a lot of the women in the Old Testament and their husbands. This is not in any way to say, in fact, I can prove it to you in chapter 5. 
Peter is using a phrase that Jesus used in his ministry. Jesus says, when you're in charge, don't lord it over the flock like the Gentiles do. Jesus said that. So in chapter 5, Peter's going to say for elders not to lord it over the flock. Just because you're in a position of authority that God has given you doesn't mean you need to wield it with a, with a magical power uh, and say, well, I am all, I think, I really believe I've been in some elders meetings that they would have done better if they had the gavel because it sounds like it. And some, some, sometimes leaders will rule with this, we are, the, we are the bosses and we will tell you what to do. Peter says, no. That's not how you rule. That's not how you lead the church. You don't strike people. You teach people. You set by example. And so Peter says, don't lord it over like the Gentiles do. The Gentiles did that. He says, that's not the way we, that's not the way we operate. And so the same thing with the husbands and wives. As a husband, even though you are the leader of the family, you're not to lord it over your family. Tell them, I'm in charge. You're going to listen to me. You're going to do what I say. In fact, he's going to say here that if you don't have your prayer life right, Nothing you do matters. Listen, verse 7. Husbands likewise dwell with them, speaking of the wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel, and being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. The spiritual life of the husband is seen by his actions, how we treat our wives. Our wives are not a property, we're not a boss, and they're an uh, employee. There is a mutual respect between husbands and wives. We two together have become one. We're entwined together as one. And so his comment here is that you need to understand that if you're not treating your wife properly, if you're not showing her the right respect, if you're not treating her like, and this idea of being a weaker vessel means something that is not necessarily that's just broken, but it's something that is precious. Like the items in your house, you only get out when you're going to show it off and you put it back up on the shelf or you put it behind the glass and you lock it with the door because you got, you got to keep it. He says husbands ought to treat their wives like that. And it's the same thing Paul taught in Ephesians 5. So we need to treat our wives. And if you don't do that, if you do lord it over your spouse, that last phrase, I've got it underlined in all my Bibles because it's a reminder to me. If I don't treat my wife the way she is supposed to be treated, if I don't treat her as Christ does the church, my prayers will not be heard. They'll be hindered anyway. Maybe, maybe not necessarily not heard, but they'll be hindered. And I don't want to have my prayer life hindered. And your prayer life ought to be, he says, this idea of prayer life, it's like every man ought to be praying. It's not, you know, for those of you who pray, it's every man ought to pray. And if you don't want your prayers hindered, you treat your wife the way she needs to be treated. And of course, it's just one verse. There's a whole lot there for the wives too, uh, the way that they should treat their husband. And he says, think about what's on the inside. Don't spend so much time getting primed and proper, but think about your heart. What can you do on the inside? Because uh, we need to have a, a beautiful inside, both men and women. We need to have a beautiful inside. We need to be able to look into the soul and say, do I like what I see? Uh, and then he says also, be of one mind in verse 8. Uh, and I also want to get to uh, this section here in verse 15. He talks about suffering for what is right. And he says, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense for everyone who asks you the reason for the hope. See that word appearing all the time, First Peter? That hope that's in you with meekness and fear. Having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. For it is better, if it is the will of God, to suffer for doing good 
than for doing evil. And that puts everything in perspective from what he said in chapter 1 and chapter 2. Christians are known by their conduct. They'll know us by our love for one another, our compassion, our, our forgiveness. People will be impressed and say, how can you forgive that person? How can you show such love? How can you, because I am living for Christ, that's why. And then he talks about salvation. So give, give it offense, by the way. Verse 15 is a good verse. Be able to give it offense for that hope that's inside you. And then if you have your highlighter or your pen, mark this. Mark it, highlight it, verse 21. As he's talking about how Noah was saved, and he deals with those who are saved on the ark, he says in verse 21, there is now an antitype which now saves us. Baptism, not the removal of filth from the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. That's back where we were talking about earlier. You want to have a good conscience. Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject to him. The reason why I want you to highlight this and mark it is because you will have people that say to you, baptism doesn't save. Confession saves, faith saves, baptism doesn't save. Well, it's really hard to say that when it's in black and white. Peter says, baptism now saves. In fact, I think it would be great if we made a t-shirt and wore it that just says, baptism now saves. Because it is by baptism that we have the resurrection, which is mentioned there afterwards, of resurrection in Christ, having our sins washed away, Romans 6. So he says, you, if you want, it is, it is not the removal of filth from the flesh. It is not a bath. In fact, there's a, a, a video going around recently from a uh, priest, and I don't even know what religious persuasion he is, but he takes the baby and he submerges it for like two seconds and then pulls it up, and everybody's screaming because they thought the baby was going to drown. And why do people do that? Why do they do those practices? Those are, those are traditions of men. Those are teachings of men. Baptism is when someone who is of age makes the conscious decision that they want to give their life fully to God. And they have their sins washed away. So you have to be a sinner. Children aren't in sin. They're innocent. They're they're precious. They're pure. But as they go through the world, we all harden by sin. We make mistakes. We build up. And at some point, we've got to make a decision. Am I going to live for Christ? Am I going to follow God? Am I going to honor his word? Am I going to be a child of his? Or am I going to live like the world? And so he's saying it's not this baptism that, that's just like a bath. This is a literal submersion into the blood of Jesus Christ and raised up in resurrection. Verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 9. We're not there yet on Sunday mornings, but I've got that one marked here in my Bible. Uh, this is uh, Hebrews 9 and verse 14. It says, How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without spot to God. Cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve a living God. So how can you cleanse your conscience? Only the blood of Christ can do it. And this verse tells us how we come in contact with the blood of Christ in baptism. So if you want a good conscience, you want to be able to sleep at night, you want to know that heaven is your home, you want to know you've got to be covered by the blood. And that's another question I often ask people is if they say they're saved, they say, you're saved, okay. Um, when did you come in contact with the blood? I said, well, I just prayed. And they just, well, where do you see that in the Bible? I'm looking for an example. Show me one. Show me one example. One example of someone in the Bible that just prayed a prayer and was saved. 
The Bible teaches us very plainly that there are necessary steps to take. Prayer and confession is a part of that. Confession is important. But the only way we can come in contact with the blood of Jesus is in baptism. And that's because that's what Jesus taught, John 3. It's what Peter taught, Acts 2. It's what Paul practiced, Acts 9, and repeats it, Acts 22, 16. What are you waiting for? He's asked, arise and be baptized. Wash away your sins. So the, the idea is we need to know the purpose of our baptism. Now, why in a whole dialogue of stuff on suffering does he pause and make this point about baptism? I'll tell you why. Noah was completely alone. Okay? Noah was completely alone. He saved his family. Noah, doesn't say Noah's wife, doesn't say Noah's boys. Noah, Genesis 6, 8, found grace in the eyes of God. Noah did. Noah saved his family. And those eight souls that were saved on that ark had to realize that the rest of the world was going to perish around them. Now listen, he's talking to a group of people persecuted by the Roman church, he's, or Roman, the Roman government. He's got people that are persecuted, that are hated, that are despised, that are suffering. And he's saying, make sure you're on the right vessel. Okay? Make sure you're on the right vessel. Make sure that you know that you're saved. Because you may not be able to save the whole world, but you can save yourself and you can save your family. And that may be why he mentions husbands and wives in the previous section. But he's saying you can be saved. How are you saved? By baptism. Just like Noah was saved on that ark, we can be saved through baptism. Uh, and then in chapter 4, he talks a little bit about service. Uh, in verses 12 and 13, he says, Beloved, don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which will try you. You know, this is, this is life. This is what's taught in Hebrews chapter 12, which is about to happen. Some strange things have happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake in Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, I like taking verses and studying words. And I don't always do word studies when I preach, but I love this section because it sounds to me so much like James 1 and verse 2. Count it all joy when you face diverse, diverse temptations or various trials, some translations say. That's exactly what Peter's saying. Counter to joy, inexpressible joy, exceeding joy. I am being persecuted because I'm doing what's right. Don't, don't take it and say, this is a terrible thing. Recognize, verse 16 says here, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glory in that matter. That the only reason I am suffering is because I'm a child of God. And if I'm a child of God, suffering is a part of my DNA. It's part of my spiritual structure. Is my mind has to be ready for it. And then chapter 5, Peter deals with the idea of leadership, and he talks about elders, which he himself is an elder. He says, the elders who are among you, verse 1, I exhort, I'm a fellow elder and a witness of the suffering of Christ, the word suffering keeps coming in, and as a partaker of the glory that will be revealed, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, seeing as overseers, not by compulsion, in other words, you're not forced to do it, by compulsion, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you. Underline that. It's a great, great text to study about what it means to lord over the flock. But being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory that doesn't fade away. 
He's saying, you're going to get rewarded as a shepherd. And we need to, I say this all the time, we need to constantly encourage our shepherds. Our, our elders get discouraged sometimes because it's tough to lead anybody, but it's especially tough to lead spiritual people because we are all sinners and we all fall short of the glory of God. And so we make mistakes and their, their role is to try to help keep us on the straight and narrow. They're trying to help us get to heaven. And so he says, you know, you need to think about that. Uh, and then he says, also, younger people, he says, you know, submit to your elders. That's important that we, we learn submission. Uh, and this can be taken as, as leaders in the church, but also just those are elder in general. general. And then verse 8, you know, I got to back up to verse 6. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him for he cares for you. Be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, who's the adversary? The devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Sounds a lot like Hebrews chapter 12 and 11. And it says, but may the grace, the God of all grace, who called us to his eternal glory, beg Jesus Christ, after you have suffered a while, perfect, establish strengthen and settle you. That's interesting he uses those particular words, perfect, because he's used a concept of that in this chapter and in this book. Establish and strengthen and settle you. Those are also words he's used in this book. Christ will help you through your suffering. Uh, and then he, he, he uh, kind of compares Babylon to Rome, verse 13. And he also mentions that John Mark is with him. He s considers him to be a son in the faith, much like uh, Paul saw Timothy as his son in the faith. But the last little shot in the arm sounds a lot like something Paul does at the end with that little punch. Uh, you need to get out and get to work. You know, take, be, be sober, be vigilant. You know, get your mind ready for the battle and don't give up. Don't ever quit. And we need that message uh, kind of get us kick-started. Great section of Scripture. There, are, there is figurative language. We can call it a code. There are, there are figurative languages used oftentimes in the Old and New Testament. And mainly it's because uh, when you're writing under direct persecution, first of all, you have to be careful about the people that are getting it. You know, it you know, Paul and Peter and these other writers, they couldn't just think of themselves. Peter's, Paul's already in prison. But what more can they do to him? Kill him. But you have to consider who the letter's going to, because <laughs> it's, a, it's maybe not a good illustration, but I got in trouble a lot when I was younger because I passed notes in class. Anybody else do that? Who gets caught? Who's, the, who's always the one that gets caught? The one who's receiving it. And so you have to be careful because the teacher sees the receiving of that letter and they go, oh, what is this about? And then very embarrassing sometimes. You know, do, do you like me? Yes or no? Check the box. So, so Peter is writing this letter to these people that he knows are already under persecution. So he's very careful in the way, and that's probably the reason why he says, honor the king. And I think it's the same reason why Luke, in both Luke and Acts, oh, Theophilus, let me give you this testament of these people that are Christians. And he is one of them. There are guys like, in the first century, Tacitus, who is a uh, a Roman, um, he actually talks good about Christianity. He wasn't a Christian, 
But he says, these people are special. They're good. They're kind. There's something about them. Uh, Josephus says a lot of nice things about Christians. Uh, in fact, he even calls Jesus the Messiah. It's not exactly the way he said it, but he says, if it, if it could be said, he is the Messiah. That's pretty clear. Um, and so being able to, to approach people who are Christians, you want to have this positive influence. So sometimes the, the tough stuff would be left for the in-person communication. But Revelation is probably the best example of what we would say, not necessarily coded language, but metaphors and numbers. When the number seven is used, when the number 10 is used, those are strategic because they have special meaning. And we'll get to that when we get to Revelation. There's a, there's a specific way that Jesus taught. Not, we haven't rang our bell yet. We need to ring our bell because it's time, time's up. But the, there's a specific way that Jesus taught that, like some of the prophets did, what we call dual prophetic messages, where most of the prophecies in Matthew early on, when it talks about Rachel you know, grieving, talks about all these different stories, sometimes Matthew uses a prophecy that was actually fulfilled way back then. But he's showing a dual, a secondary fulfillment of that passage. And so sometimes there are layered ways to look at things. And the longer you live as a Christian, you see this. Because you will read a text and you go, oh, you know, this is a really good story. And you'll apply some principle to your life. Five years later, studying the same text, well now wait a minute. Wait a minute now. I didn't realize that this is talking about such and such. And then you come at it again. The more you mature, the deeper you get. And there are times, for instance, uh, and this is, a, this is a great illustration. I'll say this and then I'll stop. Most of our Bibles have cross-references in the middle, or you may have little sub-notes on the bottom. This is someone who did what we all ought to do. And that is, take a verse and figure out where else it's said. And if it's a prophecy of the Old Testament, like a, a good one, a good example is, uh, people think that Jesus was upset with God on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's not what he's doing at all. He is quoting Psalm 22. And if they would just continue reading Psalm 22, not just verse 1, they would have seen that every single prophecy that is spoken of in Psalm 22 was being fulfilled at the foot of that cross. And so sometimes there are these layered teachings where we get a little bit, just like the seed, you know, farmers out sowing seed. Well, some grow, some don't, some get on stones. Some, okay, that's a pretty good basic message for a five-year-old. But then we look at it like the apostles did and say, well, what does that really mean? Well, this is about the word of God being sown in the hearts of men. And so there's a secondary meaning. And it doesn't mean that it's for just deep theological thinkers and studiers. It's just that every time you approach the text, there is more to learn. And it's all been there the whole time. It's been there the whole time. Uh, and I'll, I'll say this too, <laughs> one more thing. Be careful when you hear people that that's the only thing they want to talk about is the deep stuff, because we'll miss, you know, it's kind of like you go to make, uh, a, I made cookies one time, I didn't know my mom put salt and sugar in similar containers, they look the same, they sure don't taste the same, so um, be careful about people who think that they're always up here, be careful that you uh, stand lest you, uh, all the way down. Thank you for tuning in to the Ray Reynolds Wrap Podcast, and specifically this study of New Testament books. If you have a specific Bible question that relates to the material we just covered, please feel free to email me that at rayreynoldswrap at gmail.com. 
www.thepodcastnetwork.com. We want to encourage you to tune into every broadcast, follow us on social media, and get regular updates on the content. Follow, subscribe, share, and set your notifications so you don't miss any broadcasts or blogs that are posted. Check out the website for free books and Bible study materials at rayreynoldsrap.com. Hope you have a wonderful day, and may the Lord bless you as you seek to maintain an authentic life in Christ Jesus. To help you in your study of the Bible, we want to send you this Bible Correspondence Course. This course is non-denominational. It's based on the Bible. It's conducted by mail, and it's free. To receive this course, write to Getting to Know Your Bible, P.O. Box 314, Summerdale, Alabama, 36580, or call toll-free 1-877-711-5214.